This is lesson three in the study on holiness, and the title is The Spirit of Holiness. I get that from Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. And I simply would say that if you were to try and do a study on the Holy Spirit and you type that into your concordance program in your computer, you might be in for a surprise because the term Holy Spirit occurs only three times in the Old Testament. And that might lead you to some false conclusions. If you were to look at the expression, the Spirit of the Lord, you would find it's 24 times in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God, 12 times. My Spirit, 12 times. And not on your notes, the Spirit, 18 times, where Spirit is referring to the Holy Spirit. All of which is to say that the Holy Spirit is occurring more often in the Old Testament than you might think, but clearly not as often as it does in the New Testament. Old Testament occurrences of the Spirit occur as many times as it occurs in the epistles of Paul. Uh, and uh, if you were to look at the New Testament, all but three short epistles have references to the Holy Spirit. Those three are personal letters, Philemon and Second and Third John do not have a reference to the Holy Spirit, whereas half of the Old Testament books have a reference to the Spirit. So it does raise the question, doesn't it? Why is the Spirit not emphasized as much in the Old Testament as it is in the New? And you might even want to know, why is the word holy not attributed to the Spirit in the Old Testament nearly as much as it is in the New? In this message, I want to focus on three basic uh, issues. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the church and of the believer. So let's begin by talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. There are two very early references, lest we think that it's going to be a long time in coming. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, uh, that it speaks of the Spirit of God moving over the surface of the waters so that somehow the Holy Spirit is involved in this creation uh, act that is going on in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3 is uh, after the fall, and it is speaking with reference to the sinfulness of the whole earth, which necessitates... Uh, God wiping out uh, mankind. And listen to what it says. Then the Lord said, 6-3 of Genesis, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. It, it only occurred to me this morning that that may be a prophecy. Did you ever think of it that way? That ever since the fall... If the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, then obviously there is conflict between the Holy Spirit of God and the sinfulness of man. And when he says, my spirit will not strive forever, is it possible that what he is saying is, there is going to be a day when I am going to do a work in man that will deal with the conflict 
between man and me so that there is actual holiness. Well, I want to briefly talk about these texts, and, and I confess to you I've overloaded your notes with more than I'm going to refer to because I'm hoping that you will want to study this further and the scriptures that I so quickly pass by are there for you to look at as you consider this uh, more carefully. But you'll find that the Holy Spirit is fairly prominently involved in the exodus of Israel and their entrance into the land. Both Moses and, remember, the 70 judges who will judge the nation Israel, they have been given a part of Moses' spirit. They are spiritually endowed for their job. Bezalel and Aholiab, remember those guys? They're the ones who the spirit particularly gifted to be craftsmen to carry out the construction of the uh, tabernacle there in Exodus chapter 31. Joshua is a man who had the Spirit of God upon him to enable him to lead. And I want to, I want you to look at, at, at particularly at Isaiah chapter 63 verses 12 through 14. Because this text tells us that the Holy Spirit was very involved in the overall process of the possession of the land. The exodus and the possession of the land is directly linked to the work of the Spirit of God. Isaiah 63, verse 12. Who caused his glorious arm to go, to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths, Like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble. As the cattle which go into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. The Spirit of God was directly involved in the events of the Exodus and the possession of the land based upon this text, something we may not have expected to find. In the days of the judges, you have a number of references, seven to be specific if I remember correctly, seven times where leaders, judges, are said to have the Spirit of the Lord come upon them and empower them to deliver the people of Israel from their oppressors. Saul and David, remember, had the Spirit of the Lord come upon them to empower them to carry out their leadership role as kings of Israel. And the prophets, too, were men on whom the Spirit of God rested. You see many texts that would say that, Ezekiel very often, Micah 3.8. This text in, in Nehemiah uh, chapter 9, verse 30, is very interesting in the prayer of confession of the Israelites. You solemnly admonished them by your spirit through the prophets. So the spirit of God empowered the prophets of God to admonish the people of God. It's interesting to me that in the New Testament, it's very clear that the Holy Spirit was recognized as working through the prophets. In fact, In the New Testament, you would see a reference to somebody speaking through the Spirit who was not said to be doing so in the Old Testament. In particular, for example, you have David. 
when uh, in Acts chapter 1, and they're in the process of selecting a replacement for Judas, there is a reference to David. And it says, as the Spirit spoke through David, same thing in Acts chapter 2, when uh, Peter is referring back to the Scriptures where the Spirit has inspired those things. I like this text in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is the, the word, these are the words of Stephen. And these are the final words of Stephen, as you know, as he's about to be executed. But listen to what he says. You stubborn people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit like your ancestors did. So what what these texts are saying to us is the Spirit of God was very actively at work in the Old Testament. Among those people that he used were the prophets. And uh, just as they were rejecting the Spirit of God in the New Testament, they rejected the Spirit of God in the Old. Those texts in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 1, remember, are references to the holy prophets who are inspired by God and the Spirit of God is speaking through them in their prophecies. Now, I want you to notice how the Holy Spirit is the subject of prophecy. That is, not only do we see the Spirit of God active in the people of God, but we also see prophecies in the, in the Old Testament about His increased activity that will take place with the coming of Messiah and the kingdom of God. Let's just look at Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. This is the text that Jesus cites in Luke chapter 4 when he goes into the synagogue and he asks for the scripture and he reads this text and then says, Today in your hearing, this passage has been fulfilled. It says in Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. So the Holy Spirit is going to be upon the Messiah. And you can see those other texts, many texts as well, which say that when Messiah comes, he will be set apart. He will be marked out by the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and ministry. But you also see a second line of prophecy And that is that line of prophecy that speaks of the work of the Spirit in the new covenant. That is, the work by which the Spirit changes the hearts of men so that their hearts are no longer hearts of stone with respect to the law of God, that God has to keep chiseling away at them, as it were. They are now going to be hearts of flesh so that their hearts are going to be inclined toward and love to do the commands of God as he gives them in Scripture. Let's just look at verses 26 and 27 of that text that Carrie read in Ezekiel 36. I will put my spirit within you, that is Israel, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the Holy Spirit in the coming of Messiah, will be evident in Messiah, and it will be evident as well in the people of God as he changes their hearts 
and predisposes them to love the law of God and desire to do it. So let me make just a few observations. The Holy Spirit of the New Testament equals the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament. The New Testament writers, when they speak of the work of the Holy Spirit, they refer to those texts where the Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of God is referred to. So the connection is clearly made in the New Testament. B.B. Warfield has an excellent article. I first read it in one of his books called The Selected Shorter Writings of Benjamin Warfield. And I couldn't find it until I looked online. And uh, you can download this article. It's really, it's not so short (laughs) online as it was in that book. But regardless, he has an excellent article on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And uh, he calls the Spirit of God the executive, the Holy Spirit, the executive name of God. That is, he sees the Holy Spirit as sort of in the front lines of the active part of what God is doing in the Old Testament. I wouldn't have initially thought that to be true, but I believe that he is right. The Holy Spirit is more prominent in the Old Testament than you might initially think. And that takes some some looking at some of those different texts that uh, I've referred to. When you look at the Old Testament and you compare it to the New, there is a basic consistency between what is revealed of the Spirit in the Old and what is revealed in the New. But you have to say, I have to say, the teaching on on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is what I would call a mystery. That is... With When you have those hardcore uh, monotheists in, in Judaism that are going to really bristle when Jesus makes any claim to be God, when you see references to the Spirit of God in the New Testament, they don't seem to react as much. But the reality is it's clear that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament must be God as well. Now, did they see it? I don't think so. So it's a mystery, not something that is unrevealed, but something that is not fully grasped. So that in the New Testament, we now look back and we say, aha, and we see the consistency. We also recognize that looking forward from the Old Testament, no one was ready for what came in the coming of our Lord Jesus and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this thing of eminence and transcendence, I don't like those words, but but just think about it this way. When I think about the Old Testament and I think about the holiness of God, I get out my binoculars. And the reason I do is because God needs to be a long ways from me, or put better, I need to be a long ways away from God. Because if I get too close to a holy God, it's me that's in trouble, not him. And so there's this whole aspect of distance But when I look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, I all of a sudden see that the Holy Spirit is very intimately involved in the lives of men, that he indwells David and and Saul, and he inspires the prophets, so that I see in the Holy Spirit this this closer, uh, intimate relationship between that person of the Trinity and uh, the individuals in whom uh, to whom he is ministering. Now let's talk about the Holy Spirit 
in the uh, person and work of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. We're approaching Christmas time. You would expect a lot of references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament Gospels, especially Matthew and Luke, related to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. His conception is clearly stated to be the work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, as you see in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 1. Then you see in Luke those utterances that are inspired by the Spirit that praise God and acknowledge Jesus to be the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophetic texts. So Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, and there are some other statements, depending on how you take Mary's Magnificent and so on, where it may not specifically say that the Spirit spoke through her, but I think we would clearly understand by looking at those words that that, in fact, is the case. Then you come to this interesting character, John the Baptist, and his relationship to the Holy Spirit and to our Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, it is said that he, when he is born, his parents are told that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in the womb. And you see in chapter 1 and verse 41 of, of Luke that that indeed happens. One of the key distinctions that John makes between himself and the Lord Jesus who is coming is that he baptizes with water, but the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And we could go on and say, and with fire. So it is that that ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus that somehow sets Jesus apart from John. It is interesting, though. John was filled with the Holy Spirit, And we know from the Gospel of John that John never performed a miraculous sign. That's what the text says. That means that people must have been drawn to John and his preaching, not by the spectacular events, but by the power of the Spirit that worked through uh, John the Baptist. And then John identifies Jesus as the, uh, the the Messiah. You remember in John chapter 1, and this is a fascinating text in verses 29 through 34. John is going about his ministry and he's saying there is going to be Messiah who comes. And that he doesn't know who that Messiah is yet. And then... When Jesus is revealed to him, it's revealed to him at the baptism of Jesus. And here's what John says twice. He said, God revealed it to me that when I baptize, the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, twice it says that, and remains, he, in fact, is the Messiah. So when the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus at his baptism, the Spirit is said to remain on him, and John therefore goes out and says, this is the one. This is the one. This is why I was baptizing as I was. God has indicated by the Spirit. And the fact that the Spirit remains on him is significant. What that says is the Spirit is going to be very significant in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. So let's look at that for a moment. Again, John identifies him in John chapter 1. John the Baptist identifies him in John chapter 1. But I want you to notice the the sequence of events in Luke's gospel. The baptism of the Holy Spirit 
is that event in which the Holy Spirit descends upon our Lord Jesus and remains. So the baptism of Jesus is significant because of the baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon him. Right after that, you come to uh, 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 Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, and it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is led into the wilderness. So what you see now is the manifestation of the Spirit's work in the Lord Jesus, and the first thing that the Spirit does is lead him to the temptation of Satan as described. When you come to verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, Jesus commences his ministry, and the statement is, in the power of the Spirit. Jesus commences his earthly ministry operating in the power of the Holy Spirit who has come upon him and baptized him at his baptism. When you come to Luke chapter 4, verse 31, now you come to another reference to our Lord's ministry. We're going to skip over the Nazareth part and come to Capernaum. But it says there that they were continually amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority. And then you remember this demon-possessed guy comes on the scene and Jesus speaks to the demon. But the demon recognizes the authority of Jesus. And my point is this. When the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and empowers him, the subordinate spirits give up. It is obvious the Spirit of God empowers Jesus and enables him to take on any demonic opposition that comes his way, and and they surrender. But you see, throughout our Lord's earthly ministry, for instance, in Luke chapter 5, it says, the power that Jesus, knowing the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing, did miracles. That statement, by inference, says to me, there must have been times when Jesus did not sense the power of the Spirit to do miracles. Why would it say that he senses power there and does it if there's not times in which that may not be the case. We know there were instances where our Lord Jesus did not perform many miracles because of unbelief. It seems to me, what I'm saying is, it seems to me that there's a reference to the power of the Holy Spirit and our Lord Jesus is not acting independently or autonomously by his exercise of power, but he is acting in subordination to God's power through the Spirit in in his ministry. Some might disagree with that, but... It seems to me that you see the ministry of the Spirit throughout the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus rejoices in the Spirit. So again, it seems like the Spirit of God is at work in the Son of God to produce these things. Look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. This is Peter, remember, speaking to Cornelius and the house that the people that are gathered. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were opposed, oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It seems to me that Peter is saying, Jesus went about his earthly ministry marked by the power of the Spirit uh, in that ministry. In uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that Jesus, by the Spirit, gave orders to the apostles. I guess what I'm trying to say is, 
Everywhere I look where Jesus does something, it seems to attribute what he does to the leading or the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me come back to uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 32. This is really critical. Remember that Jesus has been performing miracles, and up to this point of, in, in time, the, the, the opponents to our Lord Jesus have looked for some way to find out how they can excuse or rationalize the miraculous ministry of Jesus. He's not really who he claims to be. He's some kind of fake. John chapter 9, no, this guy really wasn't the blind guy. This is some kind of a a guy that's been been faking it to make it look like Jesus did something. And the blind man keeps saying, oh, it's me, it's me. And it was. What do you do when you're trying to demonize Jesus, quote, unquote, and every time you look bad and he looks good? Well, they finally come to the conclusion the only way to explain the power of the Lord Jesus is not to deny the power. They can't do that. But to deny the source of power. And so they say... It's by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. That's why he has miraculous power. Now, the thing I want you to notice about this is, how and why does Jesus react? He goes on and he will say, any blasphemy that is committed against me can be forgiven. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven forever. And it's as a result of that, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus speaks in parables so that they won't believe. That's The text is very clear on that. Parables were used not to communicate the truth more clearly, in most instances, but to obscure the truth to those who had made critical decisions and the switch had been turned off, so to speak, for them eternally. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is saying, it's one thing for you to speak against me. When you call the power under which I operate, the power of the devil, you have not blasphemed me. You have blasphemed the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is the one who illuminates men and enables them to understand Scripture. The Spirit of God from John chapter 16 is the one who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Spirit of God is the one who quickens men and brings them to life. You blaspheme Him, and you're forever doomed. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is saying, when you call my power the power of Satan... You are saying that every miracle that I do, which has been done through the power of the Spirit, is really the the miracle that has been performed by the devil. So he seems to be saying in that the very same thing, and that is all of Jesus' ministry is intimately tied with and dependent on the ministry of the Spirit. Think about this. When you come to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, The temptation is for Jesus to act independently, is it not? You know, if you're hungry, then make these stones into bread. You know, forget the fact that God led you out here, the Spirit led you out here. Take care of yourself. And Jesus refused to act independently. Jesus says over and over in the Gospel of John, I do not do anything on my own initiative. I do what I see the Father doing. I speak the words that the Father has given me to speak. I would suggest to you that Jesus does not act independently of the Spirit either. 
That is, he acts in conjunction with and in subordination to the power of the Spirit, and so the Spirit is at work. By the way, the Spirit does not work independently either. He says, the Spirit will not speak of his own. He will speak the things that concern me. So the Spirit is not autonomous. There is that interdependence and intertwining of the members of the Trinity that I think is very clear. Okay. Not only is all of the earthly ministry of our Lord the work of the Spirit, but his death is. Remember that in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, who by the eternal Spirit... Uh, offered himself as a sacrifice. So even the work of Jesus on the cross, the atoning work of Jesus, is somehow uh, embraced and empowered, ennobled by the, the work of the Spirit of God. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 and chapter 8 and verse 11, it is very clear. When our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised by, you got it, the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, if the Spirit raised, if you have the Spirit in you that raised the dead body of Jesus from the dead, then he will raise your dead bodies. Remember, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The Spirit who delivered Jesus' body from the death will deliver you from death, your bodies from the power of sin over you. I think that's pretty powerful stuff. I won't linger here, but you notice all these texts in which Jesus speaks about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is very clear that the Spirit is not only ministering through Jesus, but upon his ascension to the Father, He is going to come in a special way and he will minister. He will minister to those who proclaim his name and they are opposed and drugged before the rulers. And it says the spirit will give you the words at that at that period of time. Jesus says in John chapter seven, out of his innermost being will flow, as it were, living waters. All of these references to the Spirit that is to come. John 20, verse 20, he breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So over and over, Jesus speaks of the powerful ministry of the Spirit that is yet to come. So, here's what we see when we look this far from the Old Testament and from the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. In the Old Testament, prophecy pointed to a time when the Holy Spirit would come in a powerful way in the life and ministry of Messiah and also in a powerful way to instigate the new covenant and bring it to pass through changing hard hearts to hearts of flesh. That, of course, has been fulfilled. If our Lord's entire ministry was a ministry and life in dependence upon the Spirit, then how in the world could we ever hope to be holy and to live the Christian life apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives? That's what the Old Testament prophesied. It's what was practiced in terms of the life and ministry of our Lord. We dare not try to attain holiness on our own. So we talk about the Holy Spirit and and holiness. And I should I should make a, a, a note. I'm going to add a point here before point A on your notes if you happen to be there. 
And that is, the Spirit is the basis of unity, Ephesians chapter 4. The Holy Spirit is the basis of unity within the church. Is that not right? The unity of the Spirit, the basis of our unity. He is the source of our spiritual gifts, also Ephesians chapter 4. And the fruit of the Spirit is the impartation of the nature and character of God into the lives of believers. Would you not agree? Galatians 5, 22, 23. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, those things are the manifestation of God, the manifestation of His holiness in the lives of believers. So the Holy Spirit is not only one who is holy, He is the instrument by which holiness is imparted to believers based upon, of course, the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So, point A, sanctification is the work of the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2. It's the Spirit of God who sanctifies, sets us apart, makes us holy. Here's the interesting thing in the New Testament. When you look at the life of the New Testament church, sin is several times described as an offense against the Spirit of God. Look at this. Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Spirit of God by doing some of the things that would characterize the old life. And then in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias is accused of lying to the Spirit. So in some way, the Spirit of God indwells the church in a special way to be deceitful to the church and in the church is to lie to the Spirit of God. And then with Sapphira, again, her sin is described in terms of the Spirit. He says, Peter says to her, why do you put the Spirit to the test? Isn't it interesting? So sin is somehow described in terms of an offense against the Holy Spirit. And then you have 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it basically says, a sin committed in the body is a sin against the Spirit who dwells in you because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So bodily sins are an offense against the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 The Spirit of God enables us to do the good things which the law requires. That all is based upon Romans 6, the necessity of a godly life. Romans chapter 7, the impossibility of a godly life in the power of the flesh, which leads Paul to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The problem is not the law. The problem is sin and the weakness of the flesh. So Romans chapter 8 It is the Spirit of God who possesses and indwells every believer who raised the dead body of Jesus from the dead and will also raise up our dead bodies to do those things which bring praise and honor to him. This is a key text. Sanctification is not by works, but through the Spirit by faith. I guess we ought to take a look at that. And I will say as you're you're turning to Galatians chapter 3, Those of you who remember Don Curtis and those of you who don't, you ought to look on Bible.org under Don Curtis, and he has an article uh, titled, What Changed Because Jesus Died? What Changed Because Jesus Died? He says what all of us, I hope, already know and believe, and that is that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. 
But he also goes on to say, based upon this text and others, that when Jesus died, he also brings in that age of the Spirit that Ezekiel 36 speaks specifically of, that Jeremiah 31 speaks indirectly of, and other Old Testament texts, to where what you see is that sanctification is the work of the Spirit and it is achieved in the life of the believer, not through law-keeping and works, but through faith. Now, think of it this way. When you look at the Old Testament Judaizers, they kept trying, I should say the, the Gospel and the New Testament Book of Acts Judaizers, Galatians as well, they kept trying to add works and law-keeping. So their first pass was Acts chapter 15. Unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they front-loaded the gospel with, you believe in Jesus and you keep the law. And uh, the apostle said, no, 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 no. You believe in Jesus alone for salvation. Then they come along and we see it in Galatians. Okay, so we couldn't get it in the front door. Let's drag it in the back door. Now you are sanctified and made holy. Granted, you're saved by faith in Jesus alone. But you're sanctified by law-keeping. That's the key. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, in Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. How is sanctification achieved? Is it achieved by works, law-keeping, trying harder? No. It's achieved the same way, on the basis of the death of Christ and now the coming of the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts. We receive the Spirit through the death of Christ and faith in that, not by works. So... Sanctification is not achieved by human effort. It is achieved by faith in Jesus Christ and the spirit that he's provided. It manifests itself in human activity, just as salvation does, but it is not brought about by human activity. Okay, I wish I had more time. Don's written a whole paper on that, and it's worth your consideration. So let's consider a few things then, shall we? Sanctification is not by means of works, but through the Spirit, by faith. Holiness is the work of the Spirit of God based upon the cross work of our Lord Jesus. And it is received by faith, not by works. Here's the one I want to lean on a bit. We do not give the Spirit his due. I, I tell you a story. I went to a wedding a few years ago, and, and it was a church where I wasn't sure that they were really on target with the gospel. And so I mentally said to myself, I'm going to count the number of times that this man specifically refers to Jesus Christ. Not God, generically, but Jesus. I think maybe once Jesus got mentioned in the mix. And I said to myself, this guy's no evangelical. But I thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting to come to a church where we do believe in Jesus and ask the question, how many times is the Holy Spirit ever mentioned? I frankly think not often enough. 
I think that we have, and I call it there, pneumophobia. I had to, I had to tell word, add that to my dictionary, partner. It's not in any of yours. Pneumophobia. And I'll tell you why. It's because of some of the craziness that's come about through the charismatic movement. It, 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 it's, it's through, you know, all kinds of stuff that you and I would not be happy with. And, and so therefore we back far away. Thank you, man. Okay, warm, because I got cold over here too. This is better. Mm-mm. Doesn't take me long to get in hot water. I'm sorry. But there is, is there not, can you not acknowledge with me that there is, in a sense, an uptightness of non-charismatic evangelicals to where, you know, even the raising of somebody's hands and we start to tighten up a little bit, you know, get itchy, as though somehow that's something that belongs to the charismatic movement rather than something you see in Scripture? So what I'm suggesting to you is, in, in this overreaction that I think may be characteristic of a number of Christians. In that overreaction, we're reticent to say much about the Holy Spirit because we think it opens the door to eccentricity. And so I think we shy away. And it's interesting, by the way, those of you who know Don Curtis, one of the things he says at the start of the paper is, I am not going to talk about horsiness. I'm not going to talk about tongues. I'm talking about something that every believer ought to be intently interested in because it's talking about the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian to produce holiness. Holiness and spiritual gifts. This is a really interesting um, topic that could take a whole sermon. But the Holy Spirit is given to contribute to corporate holiness. I believe that what you see, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4 and other texts is that God is growing up the entire body. And while there is the individual element, there is also that sense of the bride, as Paul speaks of in Ephesians 5 and 2 Corinthians 11, where that bride is the church and it is being purified and made ready for the time when the Lord Jesus returns. So there is a corporate element to the work of the Spirit, by the way, I say parenthetically, as church discipline does. Church discipline is for the collective purity of the church as well as the uh, purity of the individual. Spiritual gifts are not a measure of holiness. One of the problems you see in Corinth is that people measured how spiritual you were by the gift that you possessed or claimed to possess. I think in some instances there was more claim than gift. But but I think that what happened is people looked upon a certain set of gifts, a certain category of gifts, and they said, there's where spirituality is, there's where holiness is. And the problem with that is then everybody starts gravitating to that one gift. And there's a kind of uniformity that comes about where everybody's trying to emulate that. And my friend... I don't care whether it's speaking in tongues, prophecy, or teaching. If you think spirituality and holiness is tied to a gift, you're wrong. It's not. Spiritual gifts are gifts of the Spirit distributed amongst the body for God's purposes. And here's something that I'm going to try on you for size, and you may shake your head and walk away. God's holiness is God's absolute, utter uniqueness, is it not? He 
is unlike anybody. He's in a category of his own. There are no rivals. How does God's holiness manifest itself in believers? Well, there's a sense in which we do manifest our holiness by not doing certain things, Ephesians 4, and by living transformed lives, Ephesians 4, 17 and following, Romans 12, 1 and following, by living transformed lives. But I believe there's another dimension, and that is when God spiritually gifts believers, he gifts them in such a way that every believer is absolutely unique. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of ministries and the same Lord, varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. I believe that God has gifted every single believer with a unique, I'm going to say combination, you can put that aside if you don't like it, a unique combination of gifts, a unique calling and a unique level of success to where nobody can reproduce your ministry the way God intends to work it out through you. Every single Christian is unique by God's creation and God's gifting. Isn't that a great thing? So we don't see, I don't see Christians coming and coming out of church with cookie cutter versions of holiness. I see Christians coming to church. Yes, there are things they commonly hold to. Yes, there are things they commonly don't hold to. But each and every believer uniquely holds to that gifting the Spirit of God has given them and that unique ministry, because nobody is like you and can perform that for which God has designed you. I'll tell you, that to me is exciting. That I don't have to try and imitate, and yet I see it, whether it's in the preaching world or it's in evangelism or whatever it is, everybody's trying to imitate other people who are successful rather than to be what you are. And let God be successful through your unique combination of gift and calling and blessing. Okay, I'm off that wagon for a little bit. Last point. Every Sunday is or should be an exercise of following the leadership of the Spirit. I've been to some churches where everything that is done is on a script. Virtually everything is on a script friend of mine who goes to one such church said to me the other day, I think you and I need to talk about what you're uh, saying there. If indeed the Spirit of God is leading us, and not just leading us in a collective way, but leading us in individual ways, if he is doing that, that I find it very difficult to come to a, to a church gathering in which one or a handful of people write the script and everybody else plays it. I, I, I know, I know, I'm out on a plank, and, and I don't, I, I'm not saying these people do not have many and these groups don't have many positive qualities, but I'm saying to you, isn't it, isn't it fascinating? Isn't it delightful? Every Sunday, to come to a meeting where it isn't all scripted and where the Spirit actually can and does lead in a way that isn't in the script? That, to me, is a really exciting thing. And I believe 
it's an exercise that is typical of the way in which God is at work in his saints. And that we then, as we go out from this place and we go out into our lives, we have to look for how God the Spirit is working in our lives, opening doors, closing doors, and leading us to be uniquely the people that he has created us to be. The holiness of the Spirit. What a wonderful thing it is that holiness is his work and that he accomplishes it through his Spirit. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, I simply need to say to you, the Spirit of God is the, is the, the cross of Christ is the solution and the Spirit of God is the key. It is he who will convict you of your sin and your need of salvation. It is he who will take the scriptures and bring them to light in your mind because the natural man will not receive the things of the Spirit of God. It is he who will quicken your heart to respond to the gospel and acknowledge your need of a Savior and trust in Jesus. And when you do that, it is he who will live out the life of God in your life and make you the person you could never be apart from Christ and apart from his Spirit. Father, we thank you for uh, this text, for these words. And we ask, if there is any unbeliever here, that you might make the gospel clear to them, that they might trust in the, in the death of Jesus Christ in their place for their sin, and that they may then experience the promise that the Spirit of God would dwell within them, change their hearts, empower their lives, lead them to glorify you. And if we're here as believers, Father, help us not to push away the teaching of the Holy Spirit, but to recognize how desperately we need your Spirit. May he work in us collectively and individually to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.